Well, the last couple weeks, Pastor Rick has been spending time with us, just showing us through Scripture about Satan, demons, and their goals of destruction in spiritual warfare against his saints. And as we press on to Ephesians 6, we are going to continue that theme of learning about spiritual warfare, and we're going to be reminded that there's a response that we need to have in preparation of preparing for that spiritual affliction, spiritual violence against us. And so I'm looking forward to that. The Bible has a lot of warnings. It has a lot to say about dangers that we encounter as Christians. There are physical dangers, there are spiritual dangers that we need to be aware of. Now, the Christian life is a life filled of joy, filled with hope, filled with peace. But it is, is it a life where we are promised safety? And the answer is no, not at all. In fact, it's the opposite. We are promised that the Christian journey is going to be a journey that is quite dangerous. So we need to be prepared. One of my favorite books, which just vividly paints a picture of the dangers that we encounter in our Christian walk is John Bunyan's famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. I know many of you have read that. And while John Bunyan was in prison for preaching the gospel, he wrote this masterful tale of his protagonist named Christian, who lives in the city of destruction. There's a man named Evangelist that comes and tells him that, hey, you need to get out of here. You need to flee because the wrath of God is coming upon the city of destruction. So Christian heeds that advice and he leaves and he starts his journey to the celestial city. Now, when he leaves, he leaves with this pack on his back, this heavy burden, which Bunyan uses to represent depravity, sin. And the wonderful thing is, is during his journey, he actually comes to faith of the Lord of the celestial city, and he loses his burden, and he continues on with his journey, which is wonderful. However, the dangers of his journey do not cease. They do not stop, but they continue. And one of the trials that he encounters happens when he he and his companion, Hopeful, you can see Bunyan's allegorical meanings behind these names, but they are sleeping in a field close to Doubting Castle. And in Doubting Castle lives a giant named Despair. So the giant named Despair comes out and he kidnaps Christian and Hopeful and throws them in the dungeon. So as they're in the dungeon, they're just in this terrible environment. It's damp, it's wet, it's horrible, and they just are abused and they are suffering in just this dark, horrible environment. And in the cell, Christian is having conversations with Hopeful and his thoughts are just running out of control and just his misery. In fact, he even goes to the point of even considering taking his own life. There's one point where struggling with this despair, Christian cries out to Hopeful, what shall we do? The life we live is now miserable. For my part, I know not whether tis best to live or to die out of hand. And as they're having these conversations, it's Hopeful that actually reminds Christian of what the desire of the Lord of the celestial city is for them, and that desire is for them to persevere. So they continue in this damp cell. But their suffering continues as well. 
And so the giant comes in day in, day out. They're starving. They're suffering. He's afflicting them. He's beating them. It's this miserable, miserable existence. There's even this one point. It's just this eerie scene where he comes in with these bones from past pilgrims in which he is devoured. And he's showing them these bones, discouraging them, saying, this is going to be you. You have no hope. And so they're in this terrible situation. But then... Something happens. Something changes. They've been, Christian's been sitting. He's been lamenting his mistakes. He's been considering quitting by taking his own life. He's just been in just misery. And then he changes his response. And Bunyan writes this. Well, on Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost the break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in a passionate speech. What a fool I am, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may walk at liberty. I have the key in my bosom called promise, and it will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try so Christian stands up, he takes out the key of promise, which he had all along during his suffering. He opens up the lock, and they flee Doubting Castle. Now, that's such a beautiful allegory of just how sometimes we can get trapped in despair, and we tend to look in on ourselves and see our own weakness, and we lament when all along we have what we need to persevere in any trial. And we have the key of promise. And the key of promise for us is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have a savior who not just gives us salvation as Christians, but also he is the one who is our helper right now. So our passage for today is going to be in Hebrews 4. If you could take your copy of God's word, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Now, we're going to spend our time in the last three verses of this chapter, but before I read that, I want to give you some context for chapter four that's not going to just help our understanding, but also it's just going to put a weight on the last three verses that we're going to be spending our time on. But the context of chapter four is warnings, warnings of the dangers of disobedience. In fact, the author reminds Christians the grave consequences of Israel's disobedience and how they actually lost the blessings from God because of their unfaithfulness. And so it's a warning for these Christians reading this letter not to repeat that same sin of disobedience and just just faithlessness. So in verse 11, 13, the author continues this warning. It says, starting in verse 11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's a stern warning. 
If you are running into disobedience, you know better because the word of God actually exposes your heart in that. And also God knows everything. There is no hiding from his sight. And we need warnings like this. We need warnings like this for our faithfulness and to persevere. We need these warnings to actually be able to be on the alert from our own sin and also the desires of God. So the proper response to a passage like this is to examine yourself. It is to examine yourself and see where there might be unfaithfulness within your heart. But there's other responses too to this that would be tragic. They would be dangerous. One response about the worst thing you can do is read a passage like this and just think, nah, it'll be fine. It's no big deal. It's all right. I'm good enough. That would be a tragic tragic response. We need this. And there's another response, though, that in some ways is almost equally as tragic. Because one side that says, ah, I'm good to go, whatever, that is somebody who is looking at themselves and relying on their own self-reliance, which is so destructive. But there's another response where somebody actually reads this. They rightfully examine themselves. They rightfully take heed, but they become fixated on their own weaknesses, and fall into discouragement and possibly despair. You read something like this and you think, oh no, I'm in big trouble. And you stop there and you do not go on. Once again, that's a highly destructive response. And in some ways you're relying on your own self-reliance because you're looking into yourself and you see that you come up wanting, but you stay there. And when confronted with self-weakness, many can feel their own just giants of despair just taunting them. You read a passage like this, and all of a sudden you start having those thoughts of, well, the chosen people of God, they messed up. They missed out on the blessing. What's going to happen to me? Or you hear these thoughts of, well, God knows my deepest, darkest thoughts. He knows I'm completely worthless, and he knows it. And there could be such discouragement from that. And the most tragic response when we have these thoughts is to continue to look at ourselves and be discouraged and just our own self-made, just dungeons of despair. There needs to be a different response. And many times when we deal with things like this, especially when it comes to this passage, what do we need to do? We just need to read the next verse is what we need to do. So do that with me. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin." Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need. Is there any more wonderful truth than that? That we are not alone in our Christian walk, but we actually have a helper. We actually have Jesus Christ who is willing to help us and he understands 
stands. Many times when we deal with our own sin, we feel like that alienates us from God and we move ourselves away when God is saying, no, we need to hold fast and we need to draw near. So as we continue in this passage, we're going to uncover two essential responses of reliance to Christ's high priestly ministry. Once again, the worst response that we can have is actually looking to ourselves and our own self-reliance, and we need to respond by looking to Christ. So the first response is that we need to devoutly remember his understanding compassion. We need to remember who he is and his feelings towards us. Look back at verse 14. Once again, the writer writes, Therefore, since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So this, once again, this is within the context of warnings, of severe warnings. And so there needs to be a response to those warnings. And what is the main command in this verse? The main command is let us hold fast our confession. So what is this confession that he's talking about? Because if there is a warning that we're going to miss out on blessings from God, we need to rightfully know what this confession is that we need to hold on to. It's so interesting that after going from a warning of stern just warning of disobedience, you expect just this list of, all right, guys, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Everything's good. Instead, it's, no, remember what you already have. That is the command. So this confession, what is that? And within this one verse, the author doesn't directly tell us, but it's because he doesn't have to. All the context from the perspective from the preceding chapters before and after, even the context in this verse, Hebrews as a whole, the New Testament as a whole, there is no doubt that the confession that we're supposed to have is not what, but it is who. Hebrews 3.1 reads this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So what is the confession? The confession is who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. It is a person and works of Christ. That is what we are to hold on to. And why why is this a response? Okay, here's this warning of disobedience. You need to do this. Why? Why is that the response to this? And I think if we look at ourselves, we know why. It's because we're so forgetful. It's amazing how weak we are. It's amazing how as we're going through just the distractions and busyness of everyday life and we go through trials and hardships, how just instantly we can actually forget the one who is the center of our life and we start thinking about ourselves rather than him. It happens to all of us. It's baffling how quickly at the slightest temptation and hardship, just the slightest busy schedule And next thing you know, we find ourselves in selfishness and looking to our own intuitions and we fall into self-reliance and we forget our Savior. The good news of Jesus Christ is something that as Christians we never get over. And it's something that we need to continue to meditate on and hold in front of us. We need this because we are forgetful people. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of who Jesus is, And what he does for us. And he does a lot. 
Not only has he provided salvation for us, but right now in the present time, he ministers to us. He has a present ministry to us right now as Christians as we walk through this life. So if we're going to rightfully hold tight our confession, we need to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, and we need to have correct thinking about who he is and what he does for us. Now, the verse that within the verse that we are uncovering this morning, it gives us a lot of insight into his ministry. His ministry is he is our high priest. Now, if you're a Christian, a recipient of the New Testament, of the New Covenant, rather, that we've, is revealed in the New Testament. But when we see language, this title of high priest, we need to have an understanding of the Old Covenant that is revealed in the Old Testament. Otherwise, Jesus being our high priest just doesn't make sense to us. So, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, we read Moses' recording of God forming a nation, forming a nation, the nation of Israel, to have a relationship with him. This is a nation that he forms from the seed of Abraham. He grows them in the country of Egypt, and then, of course, we know he delivers them from the country of Egypt to go and become a nation and have a relationship with him, worshiping him. But there's a problem as far as the people of God becoming the people of God, just regular, normal people having a relationship with God. There's a problem because God is holy and everyone else is not. So you cannot have a relationship with God without a covering of your sins, without atonement. And so God provided that for them through the sacrificial system. So we read about in the book of Leviticus, we can read about the regulations and the different order of worship through the sacrificial system where Israelites would come and they would bring sacrifices, burn them at the altar for atonement over sins. Now, over this system of worship was the Levitical priest that God ordained to serve him by running the temple, by operating everything that happened within that system of worship. And the head over those Levitical priests was the high priest. He was the one who oversaw everything within the sacrificial system. Not only that, but he had even this privilege to where once a year, he would walk into the Holy of Holies, which was room where the mercy seat is, where it's it's where the glory of God was, and he would make a special sacrifice, not only for himself, but for the nation of Israel, which means in many ways he was the nation's mediator between them and God. Now, there's been many, many, many high priests that came from the line of Aaron, but it stopped, and it stopped because under the new covenant, there is a new high priest, Jesus Christ, and that new covenant was inaugurated through his blood at the cross. And the book of Hebrews makes it so clear that there is no high priest that compares to Jesus. He is not just any high priest. As this verse says, he is the great high priest. He is distinguished above all all. He stands alone as the greatest. There's no one who compares to him. And the book of Hebrews makes much of this. 
if you were to just kind of go through a summary of piecing different verses together and just kind of what are some highlights of what Hebrews says about Jesus being high priest, here are a few highlights. He is a high priest who was ordained and proved by God and now is with God. Once again, the old high priest would only be able to do that once a year, come and make a sacrifice and leave really quickly because it's a terrifying thing to be in the presence of God. Jesus Christ is with God for eternity. He has provided a one-time sacrifice of himself and atonement is found through him and there's no other need for blood sacrifices of animals. And as Every so often, you would have a high priest that would die, another one would take his place. They do not compare with Jesus because he is high priest forever, and there is no replacing him. And he is a high priest who is also undefiled. He is perfect, and he is able to save those who draw near to him. So the book of Hebrews is very clear that Jesus is high priest, and he provides salvation through his atoning work on the cross. But that's not all he does, but he is also a minister to those who've been bought and purchased with that blood. So in our passage today, we see clear implications of his present ministry to us right now as Christians. And we need to know who he is and we need to have an understanding of what he has done for us. And once again, he's not like any other high priest, And the most significant thing is, unlike every other high priest, he is the son of God. He is God. And this passage, it points to his divinity. He's the son of God, the long-promised Messiah. And he, as the passage says, he has passed through the heavens. Unlike the earthly high priest who would go in once a year, go through a human-made veil, give their sacrifice, Christ has transcended through space and time and is with the Father. He's at his right hand right now in the place of all authority. That is who he is. He is God's Son sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And this this is encouraging for us. Once again, we have a high priest who is perfect. His divinity should comfort us Because if he was not perfect, we would be in big trouble because he would not be the perfect sacrifice. We should be comforted by his divinity. But having said that, Jesus being God, that can be intimidating because that means that he is holy, he is righteous, he is perfect, and we are not. So how can we stand before such a high priest? Holding on to our confession of Jesus being God could easily become a life of trembling and frozen in fear, just out of fear of his holiness and our lack of. And yes, he is God, but that's not all. Also, he is also man. He has, yes, a divine nature, but also he came to earth. We're going to be celebrating that soon during the Christmas season of his incarnation. He took on flesh and he walked the earth as a man. And his, hum, his human attributes of being man, that is something that has very important implications for how he ministers to us today. Look down at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus became man, and he became man in order to minister to us. The author of Hebrews has already mentioned this before in chapter 2. In chapter 2, 17 through 18, he writes this, Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, pertain, in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for sins of the people for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to aid to those who are tempted. So Jesus becoming man has very weighty significance to his ministry to us. Because he became man, he was able to make atonement for sins. He was able to be the perfect sacrifice representing humanity, but also he's able to be a merciful high priest who's able to come to the aid of those that he saves through his atonement. And through his experience as a man, he is able to sympathize with our weakness. Now, that is not something just to gloss over quickly and just move on. Jesus walking the earth as a man, if you read the Gospels, that was not a pleasant experience. He suffered abuse. He suffered hunger, thirst, he suffered all the way to obedience to dying on a cross. He was killed by those made in his image. And what is the outcome of his experience? Sympathy for those made in his image. He is not like us, <laughs> not at all. We would be those that go through the abuse that he went through and we would want to wipe out all humanity. And yet what is his takeaway from his experience? He has sympathy. That is something that, that alone is something that I, we need to meditate on the rest of our lives. That is profound. And he has sympathy for our weakness. Now, this word for weakness is a very broad term. It can be used for physical infirmities and weaknesses and also a moral weakness. In this context, obviously, it's used as a moral weakness, but it's a very broad Term. And it's really interesting that within the context of this passage, there is no boundaries to this. It's not, well, I have sympathy for these sins, but then Jesus is like, but these ones, forget that. No, he has sympathy for the weakness of humanity as a whole and all that entails, which is comforting. And all of this was based on his experience, the sympathy that he has for us. And his experience, as in this passage, what was his experience? He was tempted in all things as we are. Now, this doesn't mean that he was tempted in every particular nuance of every temptation that anyone's ever experienced. Usually when you look at different categories of temptations, they all kind of go in main categories. But what we do know is he has an understanding of temptation as a whole and all temptation that people struggle with and they battle. He has an understanding of that because of his experience with temptation. Jesus as a man understands what temptation is like. He was tempted. And the four gospels capture much of these experiences. We could spend all morning talking about this. For example, he was tempted in the desert by Satan. 
He was tempted while he was weak and hungry to actually use his divine power in ways that was against the will of God. He had to deal with just the frustrations of this world, just normal frustrations of living life, traveling from town to town, putting up with the inconveniences, hunger, thirst, weariness, walking around with his friends, disciples, which he had to have lots of patience with, not to mention the other people that he ministered to from town to town. He was tested by the religious leaders. They made slanderous accusations towards him. We're constantly looking for a way to trip him up. And he, as we just sang this morning, he was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to actually not follow through with the will of God. He understands temptation. And the amazing thing is, is he understands temptation that we deal with, but even more so because he is God. We don't know what it's like to sit in the garden knowing that you're going to have to provide atonement for sins and be faithful through that. We have no understanding of that. He does. His temptation actually goes beyond us because of who he is as God living in a corrupt world. He understands more. Now, there's so many questions that come from this. There's so many questions. As men and women who are sinners, our temptation comes from the wickedness of our hearts. That is where we are tempted. So how can Jesus, who is God, be capable of temptation? And the simple answer is that, once again, never forget that he was man. Which means he was tempted in his humanity. But yet, there's still lots of questions. There's still lots of questions. There's been so much just ink and time spent in commentators and theologians trying to come up with illustrations, trying to come up with different explanations of how this all works as far as Jesus being God and man and being tempted. And some illustrations are helpful and most of them are not. <laughs> they just don't come close. And I've found myself, the more I meditate on this instead of trying to figure out what that is, just sitting back and marveling at who he is. The incarnation is something that we're never going to be able to wrap our minds around. It's too majestic for us to understand. And we need to just sit back and marvel and be in wonder of who he is. Now, the point of this passage is not to sit there and try to figure out this mystery of the God-man being tempted. That is not the point. The point is that we need to be comforted that he understands us and our temptation. He understands us in our weakness. That's what we need to walk away from this, is a comfort because we have a high priest who understands. And once again, he understands better than we do. He understands us better than we do. And he was tempted far more than we could ever even imagine, and he was faithful to the end. We are, when we are tempted, it doesn't take much for to make us stumble. It doesn't take much pressure. That's why there's many, many warnings of the Bible of persevering through temptation. We stumble, we fall, and yet he's different from us. He's different because as we read in this passage, he is without sin. Through his temptation, he never stumbled. He never faltered. He was faithful to the end, which means there's no one better to help us. 
There was no one better. There's no better high priest to help us in our struggles with weakness than the one who has been victorious over temptation. There's no one else we need to look to, especially ourselves and our own self-reliance. And that's why we need to be so quick to turn away from ourselves and call out to Christ to help us. He is our helper. He is the better high priest. He's the only one who's been victorious over sin. He understands temptation more than we do, and he understands us. And what is his response? Sympathy. And that is an encouragement for us this morning. So when we understand Jesus' ministry of high priest, we go from thoughts of terror of, oh no, God knows. He knows me. He he knows my deepest, darkest thoughts. He knows my history. We go from terror to God understands. He understands and he is willing to help. And that should be a comfort for us. So when we go back to this confession that we need to hold, we need to be diligent, religiously reminding ourselves of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that should bring us from out of discouragement from our own weaknesses. It should bring us out of despair. And we should go from looking to ourselves and our worthlessness, and we should go to worshiping Christ for who he is and marvel at his faithfulness and his power. And that's why we need to constantly be reminding ourselves that 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 is how we respond to trials and temptations is we need to remind ourselves of our belief in Christ. But that's not all. Moving on to our second point, our second response in verse 16, we need to boldly seek his divine assistance. Look down at verse 16. Author continues, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So here we have this another therefore, there's a conclusion. There's a conclusion to the high priestly ministry that Jesus has for us. The conclusion is that we need to respond. And we need to respond by drawing near. And drawing near to what? We need to draw near to the throne. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about the throne of God. It is the seat of all authority where God sits in his sovereignty, in his majesty, in his honor, in his divinity. And the throne of God is a wonderful and yet terrifying place. I think of Isaiah 6 when Isaiah was ushered in front of the throne of God. And what was his response? Of all of a sudden he's in front of a holy God himself being corrupt, a man, it was terror. It was terror. He cried out, woe is me for I am ruined. Isaiah's reaction to stand before the God wasn't, wasn't, wow, isn't this marvelous? It was no, it was terror because of who God is and who he was. And so this could be a terrifying command. Draw near to the throne of God. At the first glance, it almost seems naive. It almost seems childish. It's like, do you actually know what you're talking about here? For an Old Testament Jew, this would have been unconceivable. I mean, this would have been unthinkable. If we, and if we ourselves truly think about what this means, we would 
Be like the Israelites who was begging Moses to actually intercede for them because of the terror of a holy God. We would be the ones looking for a guy like him saying, you go talk to God, not us. We, like them, we would not be able to tolerate the fear of standing in the presence of God's holiness. But here's the good news. We have a mediator who intervenes for us. And he's not a man like Moses. He is the son of God. He is Jesus Christ. He's our high priest and he's sitting with the father. He's sitting with the father and he knows us. And he has sympathy for us. And so when you know who Jesus Christ is and the ministry he has for us, this command is not absurd. It is essential for us to do. And it is a privilege that we've been given. In fact, in some way, spiritually, our position is already with God because of our relationship with Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.6, God has raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These are our position as children of God. So for children of God, going to the throne, it's not just any throne, it's a throne of grace. That is what we draw near to because of what he has done for us. And we don't just approach the throne, but what do we approach? Our demeanor? We do it with confidence. We do it boldly. We do not approach the throne of God in doubt that stems from our own insecurities. We do it with confidence and boldly, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he has done with us, that we can actually do that, approach the throne with confidence. Now, this command is not to physically draw near. We're on earth, we're mortals, but that doesn't take away the reality of this because our relationship with Christ is a reality and it is real. So when we cry out to him, when we pray to him, when we ask for help, it's as if we're there because he's there and we have a real relationship with him. When we pray, that's not something to take lightly. That is a true divine privilege that we have been given. Now, as a Christian, prayer is, it's ordinary. It's common. It better be. It's something that we should be doing every single day throughout our entire lives is praying. But ordinary and common does not mean that it's not extraordinary. When you think of what it took for us to have this divine privilege, it is an extraordinary privilege that we have that we can actually cry out to God and our prayers are not going to be confined to the realms of this earth, but it is going to go to the throne of God and he's going to hear us. That is something not to take lightly. And one of the most amazing things is, it's amazing enough to just know that he hears us, the one who knows us, but there's also, we can expect a response. Look back down at verse 16. So that, which means there's a purpose, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So why do we draw close? Because we can expect to receive grace and mercy from God in our, help, in our time of need. We can actually have that expectation. We have a gracious, giving God. When he, we pray, he gives us mercy. He has pity. He has compassion on us. 
Not just that, but he freely gives out grace, unmerited favor to those who do not deserve it. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He is willing to give us divine blessings when we ask. And this doesn't happen in good times for us. This doesn't happen when we feel strong in the faith and I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm qualified right now to cry out to God. No, this happens when we are needy. This happens when we actually need him. That is when we cry out to God. There's so many times when we fall into sin, we fail, we feel this distance between us and God, and yes, sin alienates us. It hurts our prayers. But that doesn't mean that we don't instantly have access to the throne of God to cry out for help. So that distance that we feel, that alienation, that is us. We are looking at our needs, we are looking at our insecurities, and we are the ones that's looking to ourselves instead of looking away from ourselves to God. He wants us to draw near. He wants us to draw near. It's not our need that keeps us away from God. It's because of our need that he says, come to me. That is the God that we have, that we have that access to him. And there's so many times our discouragement gets in the way. There's so many times because it seems like we seem to go over, go to him over and over and over. And that seems to be a discouragement, but he would say, draw near. Don't be discouraged. Don't wilt in your own discouragement, your own weakness. Respond by drawing near to him. There's many times we feel ashamed and we feel like we can't reach out to God. Those are the times we are to draw near to him. There are struggles that you may face the rest of your life. And in those struggles, you never want to stop drawing near to him. It may be that whatever problems that you whatever problems, whatever struggles that you have in this life, maybe it's God's allowing that to actually make you dependent on him. In that case, boldly draw near to him. He is the one who offers help. He is the one who offers assistance. He is the one who is the strong one. We are the weak. He has sympathy for us, and he wants to help us in our weakness. We cannot forget that. There's something else that we don't need to forget. This last verse is just a reminder of our eternal position with it, eternal position rather with him. Our future is to be with him forever, to actually be with him in heaven. Right now we can pray to him. Someday we will be with him. We have to remember that we're just pilgrims passing through this world right now. And yes, we must acknowledge that the road is dangerous. There are physical along with spiritual dangers that are real. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be alert. We need to be watchful. But let us not be fearful. Let us not be discouraged by our weakness. Let's not turn to ourselves and our own self-reliance and just the outcome of that is just discouragement. Why? Because we have a divine helper. We have a divine helper who's willing to help us in our time of need. And at this time, I have to address those in the room that may not know Christ. If you have never actually put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and repented from your sins following him as Lord and Savior, 
These verses are not for you. It's a terrifying thing, but you're alone. You're alone, and the only thing you can expect is someday, if you continue in your sins, there's going to be judgment. We know that someday his patience will run out, and he will come back as king and will judge the earth. But it doesn't have to happen that way for you. Because, I mean, right now in heaven, is he there with his arms crossed, just waiting to put pour out his revenge? No, right now he offers salvation. Right now is the time that he helps those who are lost in their sins. And he is the one who helps those who turn to him in faith. And I would just pray that if you have questions about that, don't leave today without asking more questions. What it means to be a Christian What does the gospel mean? We'll have an elder at our prayer room after the service. Please come talk to us. This is the time to answer those questions because we have a wonderful high priest and now's the day for you to draw near him to draw near to him also. And he does answer those prayers. And what a reminder for us too of just the cost that it pays for this privilege to have this relationship with Jesus. It took his life It took him sacrificing himself. So why would we not draw near? The the sacrifice has been paid. The cost has been paid. We have that privilege. So we need to remember our privilege. We have access to the throne of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. So we need to be faithful to seek his provision. In our weakness, we fail so many times. We get discouraged. And we do not need to be just downhearted navel gazers that are constantly stuck in our own dungeon of despair. Many times we need to wake up and be like Christian in the dungeon, cry out when he comes to his senses and he says, what a fool am I? Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I can walk at liberty. And like him, we hold the key of promise. That promise is the gospel That promise is the promise of a savior who has provided salvation, but also helps us right now in our time of need. So when we find ourselves discouraged, we need to be quick to look away from ourselves. We need to be quick to look away from our own weakness, and we need to look to Christ. We need to hold fast our confession of him, and we need to seek his provision. And the great news is, is he is willing. He is willing. He is faithful to help us in our time of need. All we have to do is just hold fast and draw near to him. That is a privilege we have. Father, I just want to thank you so much for this passage. We need encouragement like this. Father, so many times in our weakness, we can just fall into despair. All of us have struggled with that. And Father, that's when we need to stop and we need to look to you and marvel at who you are and what you have done. I just pray for people just sitting right now who are struggling with different trials, different temptations. Father, I pray that this morning would be a morning that they would walk away just in meditation of who you are. And Father, I just pray that we would be a church body that constantly is putting your gospel truth in front of us, and that is our motivation to continue and persevere in the faith. Father, let us not forget. Please draw us close to you as we see that we need to be the ones who also come to you. And Father, you are faithful to help us in our time of need. Let us never forget that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.